So the other day, in order to read Romans 8, I ended up backtracking and going all the way back and reading Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 carefully and slowly. And I preached a little sermon to myself from these passages, and it took about two hours. And you weren't there, but man, it was really good. should have been there. (laughs) Because the big deal of Jesus is such a big deal. If I could summarize Romans 4, Abraham believed God and God counted him righteous. And we believe God, and God counts us righteous. Abraham's promise was a kid. Our promise is resurrection life. His promise was, can this promise still be true? It looks like he's asking me to sacrifice my son. And he said, God can raise the dead. I trust God. And we say, you know what? God did raise his son. I trust God. And in both cases, he counts us as righteous. And it has even crazy, a crazy verse. It says... um, To the one who works, the wages are not reckoned as a gift, just something you earn, something that's due. But to the one who without works, trusts him who justifies the ungodly. That's interesting. Such faith is reckoned as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. So we don't make ourselves godly and then God accepts us. We believe and trust God and he accepts us and transforms us into a godly person. Then Romans 5, Romans 5, 1 through 5, probably I should preach just those five verses once a year. Because now that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access to this grace in which we stand. We stand in a state of grace. I don't fall out of a state of grace. I live in a state of grace. It's my home. It's where I live. Do you know I don't have to ask God for forgiveness when I sin in order to be forgiven? I ask God for forgiveness when I sin, but I'm already forgiven. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When I realize I've sinned, I ask God for forgiveness because that's what it means to be in a good relationship with somebody. You you take care of each other's hearts. But I'm not asking, God, do you forgive me? And notice I don't ask God, please forgive me. I say, do you forgive me? And then you look him in the eyes and let him answer. That's a good practice with people too. Don't apologize to people and say, I'm sorry, and then walk away. Say, I'm sorry. I did this. I should have done this. Do you forgive me? And then you just humble yourself in that vulnerability and wait for the answer. And you're not going to be like all upset and counterattack if they say, no, I'm not ready. Because if you're ready to counterattack, you're not respecting their freedom of choice. And it shows it's just manipulating and using an apology as a means of manipulation and there's really not repentance yet. Are, Are you with me? So I live in a state of grace. I'm allowed to ask God forgiveness when I realize I've sinned, but he's already forgiven me before I ask forgiveness, because I live in a state of grace. I'm in a new covenant. I'm not in the old covenant where every time I mess up, more, more bulls and goats and rams and doves have to be killed. Jesus once for all has made me perfect forever while I'm in a process of being made righteous. Are you with me? I'm not falling out of this thing. And some people go, yeah, but you're giving people a license to sin. The law never made anyone capable of doing anything but sin. This grace that gives me the freedom to be an imperfect son actually produces transformation in the innermost being of my heart because I'm no longer sin conscious. And we'll get to that in Romans 7. So Romans 5 starts out with the biggest verses ever. It's like, you're completely justified. You're righteous. 
God has declared over you just as if you've always obeyed me perfectly, as though you were me, righteous. Why? Because I trust Jesus. Now I have peace with God, and I live in a state of grace. And then it says, and, and I'm not only rejoicing in our hope then, this place brings us into a place where my confident expectation, not legalistic American, I hope I'm a good enough person hope, like you talked about on Sunday at the very end, where you said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I try to be good, was how you used to think, because nobody ever said in church, are you born again? And so you got the impression that this was about us measuring up in the hope that one day we would pass and be justified, declared righteous. Crazy thing is, Jesus has already been measured up, and because I'm in him, I've been declared righteous. We have the verdict at the beginning of the race, and it actually provokes us to finally run well. And then Paul says, not only this, because of that, we're confident our hope, which is joyful future expectation. That's what hope is. Joyful future expectation. I am looking forward with joy to something I believe will happen. The glory of God. Hope is I know so. I'm counting on and I'm emotionally living at, I'm living in the reality that this day is coming. Hope so is man. I hope that's not hope. Nor is that faith. That's wish. That's wishing. Wishing and hoping are not the same. In fact, they're miles apart. Paul's like, I'm justified. You're justified. You're in Christ. You have peace with God. Now you are like, your whole life on earth, you know what the, end will, what the end result will be. You know where you're headed. You know what your destiny is. And it's a glory, a pleasure, a joy, a full life that will come to you that's beyond your imagination. And not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces... Perseverance, patience. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has flooded our hearts with his divine love. See, this passage is just crazy. So then he goes on to say the two, the two, uh, the two sort of uh, atoms, right? The first Adam, Adam. And the last Adam, Jesus. And how through one man's sin, we all became sinners, and we sinned a bunch. We were super, super dead in sins. And then this last Adam's righteousness was way more powerful than this Adam's sin. The, the cure is so much more effective than the disease. That's the argument of Romans 5. Because the, the, the cure came after many, 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 many sins. And boom, not only eradicates the guilt of those, but eradicates the disease, which many Christians do not believe. But I do. Then, Romans 6, he says, we're so under grace that some people are now going to say, well, if the more I sin, the more grace God gives me, maybe I should just sin a lot. And he face palms, Paul, Paul face palms. And says, are you kidding me? Don't you know? And anytime Paul says, do you not know? Don't you know? The answer is probably not. <laughs> but we need to. Don't you know that everyone who has been baptized has died to sin? Don't you know the you that was a slave to sin is dead? And most of us would say, why, why then does it not feel that way? I love reading these, these Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. 
in the conversation I have in the back of my head with my brothers and sisters whose basic argument is to try to give themselves permission to sin every day in word, thought, and deed, even though they don't want to, but they want to give themselves permission to because they believe that they do and they believe it's not possible to do anything else. And so they're reading these passages going, it can't mean what it seems to say because he says we're dead to sin. So it can't mean we're dead to sin when he says that. And it gets to Romans 7 and then he says you're dead to the law and it can't mean that either. And then he says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but condemnation is what I'm used to experiencing both from people and in my prayer life and in my conscience. So somehow... This is one of those fictional things, I guess, where Jesus overcame sin, but not really. But Paul's excited, but it's just the spoken curriculum. And everybody knows there's a difference between the, the, the spoken curriculum and the actual lived curriculum. Do you know what I mean? The unwritten curriculum. Around here, we say nobody judge each other, and then we judge each other. Right? Or like I say, with new people... New people come to Gateway, and then they hear that there's prayer meeting on Wednesday, and they come because they didn't get the memo that people don't come. Just the core, just the committed core comes. They get it, though, after about three or four times, and then they stop coming. But at the beginning, they thought that what we said we do is what we actually do. So Romans 6 is all about uh, reckoning with the reality of what happened now that I'm in Jesus because he died on the cross, but he didn't just die for me. He died as me. My whole life, I was told that Jesus died for me, but I didn't realize he died as me. I didn't realize I died in him. There was an old me that was a slave to sin as an inheritance from Adam, and there's a new inheritance from the last Adam, and Jesus is not a slave to sin, but he made himself one with me so that sin, which was in me, would be condemned in him on the cross. God didn't condemn his son on the cross. God condemned sin. On the cross. A lot of Protestants think God poured out his wrath on his son. I haven't found that in my Bible. What I have found is that Jesus took the curse of the law on himself as the representative of the Father. In fact, I have it on pretty good authority that the Father suffered more while Jesus was on the cross than Jesus. And the authority that I got that from was the Lord told me that. And I know that doesn't hold up in court, but it holds up in me. (laughs) I don't expect you to follow me on that unless he tells you that. But it matches what I found in the rest of the book. So then we, so Romans 6 is, don't you understand what happened when Jesus died? You died. And don't you understand what happened when Jesus rose? You rose. A new you, a new nature has come upon you. And so he's like, okay, so now, now, now you're free. For the first time, you're actually free. You can use that freedom to live according to the flesh. Or you can use that freedom to live according to the Spirit. Now it's up to you. Before now, when you weren't in Christ, you didn't have that freedom. You didn't feel enslaved. But you were enslaved. You didn't think you were demonic. But you were bearing the image of the demonic in terms of self. Everything curved back in on self-reference. Self, self, self. Now you have the option because Jesus has liberated you. What did I say on Sunday? I said, one of the first things Jesus restores to us is our kingdom. When he, he gives us the keys to his kingdom. 
But the first keys he gives us back is our own kingdom, and which is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Which is why one of the first things Jesus does when he brings the kingdom to people is if they have sickness in their body, he heals it. I'm sorry, yeah, sickness and death and sin run together as things that are not God's original intention. They weren't in the beginning. And will they be in heaven? No. And when Jesus came and brought the kingdom, he used the Father's authority he was submitted to, because you only have authority, you only have the Father's authority if you're under his authority. He was under God's authority, so, he, so God backed him up with power. And he evicted demons, which is really what I was trying to get to here. He healed sick, sick people, and he cast out demons. Why? Because he's restoring your kingdom to you, your personhood to you. Okay? And so now they're finally free. But how does he leave them? He does he say, now that you're free, you'll just automatically obey God and just walk away. No, he consistently says to people, go and sin no more. I've set you free. Stay free. I've bestowed your daughtership on you. Walk in it. I've restored you back to the Father's love. Receive it. Live by it. I've restored back your original innocence. Stay in it. I've shown you the Father. Trust him. I brought you the kingdom. Let it really sink in. So he's like annoyed when he multiplies the loaves and fishes and then the disciples think he's mad at them for not bringing bread when he warns them against the yeast of the Pharisees. And they go, oh, he must mean that we should have brought bread. And he's again, facepalm. Guys, you saw me multiply food twice and you think I'm worried about food. One miracle was enough to teach you of the nature of the father who you have because I didn't do that as God to show off. I did that in submission to God, whom you know, and you can do that. <laughs> Romans 7 is where I wanted to get to. <laughs> Romans 4, Abraham and us. By the way, when you're out under the stars, those are your stars. Those are your stars. You have Abraham's promises, except yours are better. Mike, your promises are better than Abraham's. They're your stars. You and Abraham are standing there looking at the stars together. Who here feels like Abraham's your friend for some weird reason that you don't understand? Man, I felt like that since I became a Christian. And it's the weirdest feeling. It's the strangest thing. He's my buddy and I get him. I totally understand Abraham. I feel like I know him already. Anyway, okay. So that's, Rom that's Romans 4. Romans 5, Jesus overcame everything Adam caused. We will reign in life through Jesus. That's what it says. It's not saying, again... Is this true or not? Because it seems like we read it and go, nah, that he can't mean what he mean, what he says. He says it's going to reign in life through Jesus. No way, that can't be. Then Romans 6, you're baptized, which means in your baptism, you went down into the water. This is why we have the baptismal by the cross. You, went, you go down into, you're buried in the, in the waters. And that's dying on the cross. And then you're raised up. That's resurrection life. And so the old you is dead, gone. The you that was a slave to sin, the you that was a sinner, the you that had no fear of God before your eyes, the you that was an enemy of God, the you that was all that stuff is done, dead, gone. That's not who you are anymore. And a new person was raised up. A new person raised, was raised up with Jesus. And the real you, Colossians 3, is already seated right next to the Father in heaven with perfect open access, unbroken communion with the Father. And, but the real you is also hidden. So you can only see him by faith and you can only find him in Jesus, her in Jesus. So do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime. 
Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. If your husband dies, you're free to remarry. And here's his point. He's talking about us. In the same way, my friends, you died to the law. I'm telling you, people think being more awake and alive to the law is why we come to church, why we read our Bibles, why we pray. They do. They, they even say it as get religion. And I, and I hear it come out of some people's mouths and I'm not naming, I'm not going to name anybody. In the same way, my friends, you died to the law through the body of Christ. Okay, again, it's a callback. He's just talked about this in Romans 6. Now he's calling back again. The old you died. The old you was a slave to sin. The old you was under the law. Now, that's interesting, right? If you're Jewish, you, this, you're, okay, okay, yeah. Moses' covenant, we met on the mountain. And by the way, the law was never God's plan. God said, come meet with me on the mountain. And the people said, send Moses instead. And they grabbed Moses, you go. And God said, fine, fine. Moses will be your go-between. And then he sends down the law. He was always, always, always intending for a reunion, a face-to-face oneness between God and people. But we said, no, we want distance. We want separation. We're scared. We're Adam and Eve hiding in the garden with our fig leaves, afraid of God. And God actually knew the whole, every freckle before we ever even, when our eyes weren't opened, his were. They weren't created perfect. They were created innocent. Difference. They were created immature, but innocent. And through union with God, they were meant to grow up into the full image of Christ. He was always plan A. Jesus was always plan A. Law was a temporary diversion. And law is there to reveal that at this distance... The inner nature isn't what it's meant to be. That this can't change without the hug of the Father being perpetual. There are two trees, God said to me one day, in the garden, and they represent two covenants, law and grace. Here is the grace tree. The other tree is the knowledge of good and evil. It represents the law. And when we ate the fruit, law came online. That computer booted up. And the first thing we did was judge God, judge self, judge each other, judge the devil. And now we're independent and we're believing what we think instead of living from what he says and who he is. Anything we would have needed to know, he would have told us out of our relationship with him. But now we must know on our own. There's a knowing that's not helpful to becoming Through knowing him, we were meant to grow up and become love. But now we think that if we know this, we can make ourselves like God. And actually, this is meant for us to know him because he is God. And if he lives in us and through us, it's all taken care of. And Paul's saying, not only did you die to sin through the cross, you died to the law. Let me keep reading. In the same way, verse 4 of chapter 7, 
You died to the law through the body of Christ so that, oh, I love that, so that. You had to die to the law because you were married to the law. And Jews go, yeah, of course we were. We had a covenant that Moses gave. But the Gentiles might be tempted to say, what about us? We weren't under the law. Yes, you were. Paul already established that in Romans 1. That even the Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic laws written in tablets of stones, they show that they have the law written on their hearts, in their conscience, because God the Father has sent a witness out into the whole world. Am I right? Doesn't he say that in Romans 1? That that Gentiles know, and I'm not saying that they have exactly in their spirit the, the Mosaic law, but the basic gist of love God, love people, don't steal, don't kill, don't take other people's spouses, et cetera, et cetera. That is clear, except for with some sociopaths, I guess. I don't know. But they probably still know. They just don't feel. In the same way, my friends, you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Okay, we died. We died. That's so interesting that it doesn't say the law died. The law is still very real, and it's still very righteous, and still very perfect, perfectly reflecting what God's will is. The law is not bad, friends. The law is good. The law just reveals what's wrong with me. I am incapable of performing it. But I know someone who's very capable. In fact, I know someone who's incapable of not performing it. I know someone who always does what is love, easily and naturally. It's my father. It's my big brother. It's my Holy Spirit. They always and easily and naturally do what is love because it's who they are. I keep coming back to, so that you may belong to another. We were married to the law. We died so that we could marry Jesus. While we were living in the flesh, now he's going to get graphic. This is sexual. What he's about to say is sexual, but you haven't read it that way. And from now on, you will. While we were living in the flesh, notice that, that's past tense, guys. That means you're no longer living in the flesh. What? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members, in our members, to bear fruit for death. Let me paint a graphic image. When we were married to law, law aroused us sexually, and then we made out and got busy with law, and what happened was flesh got pregnant with sin and it gave birth to death. That's his image. Being sexually aroused, having sex, getting pregnant having a nature of something born in you that then develops and is full-born and gives birth to death. And what, is it that, that, and what is it that provoked the sin in us that ended up giving birth to death? The law. What did it get jiggy with? The flesh. But now, verse 6, we're discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves under the, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit, And then he's about to say it down at the bottom. Now, now that we're married to Jesus, our faith, our perspective, what we're we're looking at, what we're conscious of, is instead of being conscious of what I should do and what I should be, and then that's starting a psychological process, the law doesn't just expose sin, it actually provokes sin. It arouses sin. Yes, it reveals sin. Like when you turn on the lights, you see how dirty the room is, but it does more. The law actually provokes sin. 
So the more you say to young men, don't lust, dude, if you have that message blaring on their radio every day, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, you're creating a context for them to lust. You're putting law on them. And it's going to get a bad result. Which is why I do not like when people say, hi, my name is Tim and I'm an alcoholic. It's day 387 of my sobriety. Please don't do that. That's not gospel. That's not Christian. Stop it. You're drawing identity from that which you're dead to. Stop it. Don't, don't count the days. Don't identify yourself through what you're tempted by or what you used to do. That's not gospel. I'm not trying to be mean, but I don't talk that way on purpose. That'd be like if I'm saying, that, that would be like if I still identified myself as a drug-addicted, lying pervert because I was. I am not any of those things. I am so free. Those, if, if I said those things about myself, I'd be lying. It would be, it would be lies. And if I live with that identity, law, law makes you go, I'm a sinner. It identifies you with what it actually produces in you. But now we're discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we're not slaves under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Okay, so law made babies with the flesh that produced death, grace, grace, otherwise known as Jesus, arouses different, a different part of us, doesn't he? This is me quoting John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, yet gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Grace, Jesus, makes us conscious of his gift in and for us. It provokes the spirit, causes love to come online because I'm already accepted. Instead of me having to finish what's unfinished, I'm receiving something that is finished and it's the power of an indwelling Lord living in and through me. What then should we say? That the law is sin? Of course not. The law is not, doing, the law is not to blame, he says. I wouldn't have known like, what sin was without the law. For example, he says, I wouldn't know what it is to covet if the law hadn't said you shouldn't covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. That's an interesting statement, by the way. But then the commandment came and sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. In other words, the problem is me. The problem is my nature. I'm not the right kind of thing. I'm not the kind of thing that's capable of myself of producing divine life. And honestly, that's not some big failing. You just happen to not be God. It's not something to repent of. It's just something to realize. Oh, that's a dead end. Which is why in our membership statement, we say, repenting of both my sin and my righteousness. I'm clinging to Jesus as my only hope. Because what's my righteousness? How well I'm doing it, obeying a set of laws. Well, great, buddy. You want to be Paul saying, before the law faultless? Meanwhile, you are murdering the saints and resisting Jesus. That's a big zero. We've got to repent of that kind of righteousness. Because the righteousness that comes by the law, useless, does not produce love. If you measure up to the law, you know what it does with you? If you feel you're measuring up to the law, what does it produce in you? And what does it produce towards others? Self-righteous judgment. And let's say you're not measuring up to the law. What does it produce in you? Shame, condemnation, guilt. 
And what does it produce toward others? Resentment for how they're, not, for they're doing better than you. And if you're doing well in grace, what does it produce in you? Love and gratitude. Love for God and mercy and compassion on others because you know it's not you and you know that if, it, if he doesn't play favorites that it's for them as much as for you. Right? And you also know that you're quite capable of screwing up in the same ways that they're... Because you did. You know yourself. You know you're like, okay. If he were to withdraw my spirit, his spirit from me, I, I looked worse than them right now. Oh, man. It's just no fun to be in that law mindset. And if you're... Let's say you live next to someone who's free. You're under law and you're striving. And they're under grace and they're like not striving. They're just like enjoying. They're abiding and there's like rest and peace. In Romans 8, he'll tell you, the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. I'm just going to be honest. If I'm in the flesh, screw that guy. (laughs) It's not fair. He doesn't pray as much as me. How is he happy? See what I mean? It's like, oh. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just, and good. Verse 13, did what is good then bring death to me? No, no. It was actually sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be revealed as sin. And to, to reveal basically through the commandment, sin became utterably, utterly, utterly utter, I'm making up new words here. Utterly. utterly, there we go, sinful. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Now here's the tricky verses that Christians think is talking about normal Christian life. And it isn't. Paul has been saying, we, 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 this whole book. And all of a sudden, he switches to I in these verses from 14 through 24. And I'm telling you, man, I was discipled by some people who said, the godlier you are, the more wretched and disgusting you'll realize you are in the light of God's holiness. That's what I was taught. The more reverence you have for God, the more godly and mature you are, the more of an exalted view of him you have, the more, the more small, pathetic, and ter- terrifyingly. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll peer into your own motives, your hidden motives, and you'll just go, oh my word, I'm a wretch. And then they like, take on online avatars and usernames like Wretched504. And they don't even realize how weird that is. They think it's glorifying to God to glorify how sinful they are. I'm like, bruh. The gospel doesn't puff you up with pride at all, but nor does it like squish you down with shame. Exactly. That neither of those is healthy. The, there is a boast that we have though, and it's in the Lord. I will clue you into one of my key verses here. 720. As it is, it's no longer I doing it, it's sin living in me. This is describing, here's my theory, it's a hypothesis, and I strongly believe it. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who does it. It is sin living in me. Well, that is very interesting. So sin, according to Paul, is like a disease, a living virus or a parasite that has a host. And the host is us. And law provokes and reveals it, but it doesn't cure it. And so Romans 7, 14 through 24, my contention is, my strong and very, very strong conviction is, Paul is not describing the normal Christian life. He's describing what it's like to live married to the law. Which he just finished telling us we aren't. 
Are you with me? I'm not saying, do you agree with me? I'm saying, do you understand the concepts I've tried to lay out? That if you stay married to the law, this will be your daily Christian experience because this is what it's like to live under law. Here's what it's like. The good you want to do, you can't. The evil you hate and don't want to do, you keep doing. Wretched man that you are, who is going to save me? The harder I try, the more mindful of my failures I am. Is there any deliverance? Guys, that was me ages 12 through 19. I try to stop cussing, but I can't. My prayers were this. This was my prayers. I try to stop masturbating. Can't. Try to stop cussing. Can't. Try to stop lying. Can't. Try to stop stealing. Can't. And here were my prayers. Here was all my prayers. God, I'm so sorry. I promise to try not to do it anymore. And then try not to do it. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Feels so good to do it. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I promise not to do it anymore. Did I know God? No. Was I saved? I doubt it. Mom thinks I was because I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. I don't think I was because I didn't know God. I went to church, went to youth group every Wednesday, went to church every Sunday, prayed a lot of prayers. If you asked me what the gospel was, I would have told you something that would have checked all your boxes. Was baptized at age 15. Didn't know God. Didn't know grace, wasn't a brand new creation, wasn't dead to sin, was definitely married to the law, was stuck in the motivation, condemnation, rededication cycle over and over and over. I related to Romans 7, 14 through 24, so hardcore until I was 19 years old, fell down, surrendered, surrendered completely, and then experienced peace for the first time ever. And then instead of me serving God, it was me knowing God. Instead of me doing things for God, it was me doing everything with, in, and through him. Difference. And then he started to unpack the gospel of grace to me. He started to unpack what Jesus had actually accomplished to me. He started to unpack my adoption. He started to unpack the Father's affection for me. He started to unpack my righteousness in Jesus. He started to explain this stuff, that I'm dead to law, that he's not measuring me up. That I'm not in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil anymore. That's a lie. But I've been so trained by living under it that it still has has a voice from habit and I need to die to that voice and become alive to a different voice. I need to take my focus off of how I'm doing today and my self-judgments today and my measuring tools today and onto Jesus today. I need to get my eyes off the problem and onto the promise. I need to get my eyes on God because I died to the law to belong to who? Yes. When we were under the law, sin, the law plus the flesh, produced sin and death. But now that we're under grace, the Spirit is producing life. Then he gets into Romans 8 where it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So he's giving Romans 8 as the answer. Jesus didn't come so that we would live in Romans 7, 14 through 24, constantly miserable. We were unified in sin and kind of happy and free, some people would say. Sinners are much more fun. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Billy Joel, 1980-something, I don't know. I want to go to hell. That's where the party's going to be. That's people's mindset. And are you saying this is what you have to offer people, church? Really? A divided self? Powerless, divided, miserable, and condemned? I don't think so, friends. I don't think so. I think we're stepping into Romans 8. Oh. 
No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That doesn't stop there because this is how I was taught. I was taught no condemnation means God won't legally condemn us, even though we are dirty, rotten sinners who sin every day in word, thought, and deed in innumerable ways beyond our capacity to be aware of and count. And God's just very, very, he's just, you're no better than the hooker on the street who's dropping whatever needles on the ground and doing that. You're no different. The preacher and the guy, Mother Teresa is no different from this lady. They're, they're the same person in the sight of God. All these crazy slogans we throw around that are not true, nor are they biblical. You've heard this, right? This person is the same to God. No, the no condemnation is not a legal, a legal thing only. What it says is, very clearly, there's therefore no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, verse 2, the law, the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the principle of sin and death. When you're under the law, the power of sin in you was eating your lunch and making you a slave so you couldn't do what you wanted. But now that you're under grace, the power of the Holy Spirit has transformed you. You have a new heart. You are actually living out the freedom and love of God. You are not living in slavery to sin anymore. Unless I'm taking crazy pills, that's what Romans 8, 2 means. The no condemnation, then he says in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And if you don't, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't, if you don't have the Spirit of Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus. And then some people who are still legalistic will take that as a law mindset and they'll go, oh my goodness, Pastor Tim, I'm not saved. Girl, chill out. Again, they were innocent at the beginning, not perfect. Jesus' blood cleanses the conscience of the worshiper. But go, go memorize Hebrews 10 till you get it in you. Perfect in your conscience because of the sacrifice of Jesus enables you to draw near and have the encounter and plug back into the source so that my eyes are on him and it's actually provoking the right things in me and now I've become a tree and I know I'm a tree and I'm saying I'm a tree. A son is really what I mean. But I'm quoting Jesus, Matthew 7. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Stop with the fruit. Laws always got us doing fruit checks. Grace always has us rooting ourselves in the Father's love. And so we're bearing good fruit because we've got good sap flowing through us. What sap is that? It's his love. So Holy Spirit comes to pour out love in our hearts, Romans 5, 5. See, I could talk about this for many, many hours. This is the gospel, guys. Athanasius said, Jesus became what we are so that we could become as he is. And he picked those words very carefully, didn't he? Because we don't become God, but we do become sons and daughters. So, So the irony is, and this is what's so surprising, is if you look through your gospels now, you'll see confirmation of the Pharisees representing this law mindset and Jesus actually proclaiming this grace mindset everywhere. You you know how I keep saying in church here that Jesus preached the new covenant gospel in his sayings? Because it seems like people go, oh, well, yeah, but he hadn't died yet and raised. Therefore, everything he said, he said as just a heightened, more strong example of the law. And I'm like, no, they were still under the law, but he was proclaiming the gospel. And and everything Paul says, he got straight from Jesus's mouth. And I could show you the little, the little connecting points. So it just drives me crazy when we throw away the wisdom of the smartest person who ever lived just because the people he was talking to were still under the law. But he was, he was like proclaiming kingdom gospel stuff. I've gone on too long. Okay. Um, I bless these folk right here in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for them. Each one of them, God, you delight in, you predestined, you called, you justified, you glorified. 
You've filled them with your spirit. Every good and perfect gift in their life comes from you, and you've never wronged them. Even if the enemy of their souls tries to whisper in their ear that somehow they've been abandoned or forsaken, it's not true. It's not true. And you're you're taking every element of their life and you're working it together, not just for your glory. You're way better than that. For their good. For their good. And your glory. I pray, God, that each one of us would know you, that this, this gospel of being made one with you, being free from the law to belong, to love again, to be home again. Oh, what a big word, home. In my Father's house. Oh, the Father himself loves you. I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Oh, didn't you know I must be about my Father's business? Hey, pray like this. Our Father. What a beautiful word, God. Home. That we're your kids. Jesus' ancestry goes all the way back. Son of Adam, the Son of God. We were always meant to be your kids. And now we are. And we are so grateful for Jesus, who made it all possible. Amen.